Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing his people out of slavery and into a relationship with him. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, as Ellie said, my name is Paul Joslin, and I'm the missions pastor here at Waterstone. And some of you may know this, but uh, about nine months ago, I actually made a transition in my role at Waterstone from that of youth pastor to missions pastor. Um, and it's been a good transition. I've enjoyed the new job, but there was a part of me that, that was still kind of clinging on to the youth ministry and student ministry um, that I couldn't just quite let go of this last year. And that was student camp, summer camp. And you may laugh at that because if you know anything about Christian summer camp, if you've ever been to a Christian summer camp, you know what a crazy week it can be. There's a lack of sleep. There's a ton of drama between students because they've fallen in love at summer camp and then their love went unresponded to. And, and there's that. And then there's, huh, there's the camp food. There's camp food, which is just some of the worst food you've ever eaten. And for most of our time, my time in student ministry, we'd go up to the YMCA of the Rockies, the most beautiful camp, I think, in the entire world, the worst food I've ever had at camp every single year. And I apologize if you ever worked at the camp or in the food area. Uh, one person last night was like, I know someone who worked in there. I was like, I'm sorry, the food's still bad. Um, <laughs> so it, it's summer camp is just a crazy, uh, crazy week. The thing I love about summer camp, and one reason I couldn't let it go, is that it is a week where students are free from all the distractions that happen in their everyday life. So the busyness that they have with school and their extracurricular activities, with their teams and their bands, they're pulled away from all of that. Any drama that might be going on at home, they're completely removed from. Most of the time, we take their phones and they don't even have those for the week. They're completely un distracted and unencumbered. And their one job for the week is to build relationship with each other in the group and build their relationship with God. And it's an amazing, amazing week. I've seen some incredible transformations happen at summer camp. In fact, part of my own story is that when I was 14, I went to a Christian summer camp. Um, someone paid my way to go because my family couldn't afford it and I was saved there. Um, and it transformed my life. But... There's one thing that I always find hard about summer camp, and it's not the food. It's what I call the camp formula. And if you've ever been to a Christian summer camp, you know the formula is something like this. Night one, everyone shows up in their buses and their vans, and they've had these long drives, and, and they arrive at camp, and you have to throw a huge party. I mean, you just blow this thing out. The music's incredible. It's super loud, and, and the camp director comes up, and they say something along the lines of, this is going to be the best week of your life, the best week of the year for you, and you are going to meet God here, and it's going to be a phenomenal week, and, and they promise this to the kids. And then days two through, let's say, four, they fill those days as full as they can, with as much activity as they can, in order to make students and leaders as tired as possible. And so you start your day at 7.30 in the morning, and you go until 11.30 at night, and you are just running around, and you are doing all the activities, and messy games, and, and food, and, and sunshine, and, and it's just an insane time where you're, you're so exhausted by the end of the week. And they do this because night five comes, the last night of camp. And when everyone's exhausted, you hit them hard with the gospel. And you make sure that they know that they are sinners and they need Jesus. 
And they figured this, this formula out because it works like a charm every single time. Because it turns out, if you fill a room with a thousand hormonal, exhausted teenagers and you tell them they need Jesus, they will believe you and they will make a decision to follow Jesus. And again, that's not to make light. If you were one of those people who made a decision, I am one of those people, I'm not making light of it. it, it true transformation can happen. But as a leader, as a student pastor who would walk my students through this week, year after year after year, I'd begin to become a little bit disappointed with the whole formula. Because what I, what I couldn't help thinking in the back as I was sitting with my students is that, man, do we not trust God to show up? Do we not trust God to show up and reveal himself to these kids? Or do we think that our God is so small, we have to create the perfect atmosphere, the perfect set of aesthetics in order to get a response to the gospel? Because it turns out even the most mediocre speakers, and our students will tell you at different years we had mediocre speakers, even the most mediocre speakers, if you turn down the lights low enough and you put a band behind them that can pad, and you give them 15 minutes to talk in that situation, they can get a response. And it felt like a manipulation. It felt like we were pulling these kids into making a decision for Christ without all of the commitment that's required. And what I would see year after year in, in the students at Waterstone is that we would have conversations with them and we would say, hey, are you guys aware that this is kind of what's happening? And, and I was so proud of our students because every year they would be like, yep, we know that's happening and they were completely aware of it. And we'd have amazing conversations about what that meant and about how to make camp and not just a mountaintop high experience, but something that actually had lasting value. Because what we wanted our kids to realize is that you can make a decision for Jesus without making a commitment to Jesus. And there's two very drastically different things about a decision for Jesus. A one-time moment where you say, yes, I will never sin again. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna read my Bible more and I'm gonna go to church more and I'm never gonna sin again and I'm never gonna do the things that God doesn't want me to do. That can be a decision, but a commitment is a choice to be a lifelong follower of Jesus. It's a choice to give your allegiance, to say you're not the one in the driver's seat anymore. And we would try to wrestle with our kids and help them get to this place where it wasn't just a decision, but it was an actual commitment, a choice of allegiance to God. And the reason I bring that up is because we find the Israelites today in our story in a very similar place in their lives. Just to recap what we've looked through over the last several weeks is that the Israelites, they were stuck in Egypt, right? And they were enslaved to, God, uh, to Pharaoh and they cry out to God and God hears them and delivers them out of Egypt. And he performs miracles and wonders and takes them out of Egypt. And as he takes them out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai. And they come to Mount Sinai and God's presence descends on the mountain in the form of a storm. And, and God is encountering the people and revealing to them who he is. But the people are terrified. And so they say, we don't want to go up the mountain to see God. Moses, you go up for us. You are an intermediary who will go up and hear from God for us on our behalf. 
And so Moses, he goes up the mountain, and in Exodus 20 through 24, he receives the Ten Commandments, and he receives 52 other laws and commands about social justice and and about worship and how the people are supposed to be the people of God so his presence can dwell with them. So he receives those commands, and he takes them back down the mountain to the people, and he says, this is what God has said. This is what God has commanded. And do you remember what the people say? We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will do everything he says. They make a decision for God. And Moses hearing this, he goes back up the mountain and he receives the tabernacle commandments from God. And the tabernacle commandments are are the laws about how the people should build God's tabernacle, the place where his presence will specially dwell with his people. And so he receives the commands for the tabernacle about how God will dwell with his people and God gives him the tablets that he has written on himself. I wanna pause there for just a moment because have any of you ever seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt? Show of hands, anyone? Okay, far too few of you have seen this movie. It's an amazing movie. I love the movie, The Prince of Egypt. And I think the music is incredible. I think the story, it made it come alive. It's about 20 years old now. Um, and it came alive to me in a way the Exodus story hadn't before I had seen it. It came out when I was maybe 11 or 12, so there's probably some nostalgia wrapped up in it. But I want to show you the clip from the end of this movie because it's that moment. The end of this movie is when Moses receives the the commands and the tablets and he goes back down to the people in order to tell them what God has just done and what he has said. So take a look at the video. Something you need to know about me is movies make me cry a lot. (laughs) And even though I've seen that movie probably a hundred times, for whatever reason, when it gets to the end there, and she says, your people are free, and then the music crescendos, and Moses is walking down, and they're finally free to worship God, cannot help but get choked up at what God has done in this this cartoon movie that came out 20 years ago that has pretty bad animation now. Um, But the problem with the movie is the ending that it depicts 
big surprise here that Hollywood messed something up, is could not be more misleading from how the story actually takes place. Because what happens in the story is Moses goes up and he receives the, the, the tablets and the commands for the tabernacle and he goes down. And what you would expect would be for the people to say, we will do everything the Lord has commanded again. And that it would be this moment of happily ever after of God with his people, the people that he has done so much to free and to bring into relationship with him. And instead of that commitment, they worship a golden calf and they commit idolatry. And they choose another God over Yahweh. And that's our story today, is this tension of why, why do we turn away from God? Given all that he's done, all that he's revealed himself to be, why do we turn away from him? It's the story of the Israelites, and it's our story. And I think the truth is that when it comes down to it, there are times in our lives where we've made a a decision for God without the commitment. We have that mountaintop high experience where we say, God, we will do everything you command. I will never sin again. I will never go back to this thing. And instead of that decision being a commitment that we follow through on, it's something that we continually turn our backs to God on. And that's where we find the Israelites. And so in Exodus 32, this is what it says. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Notice the use of the word Yahweh. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The closest translation or the way that we would interpret that is is that they had what would amount to a drunken orgy as an entire nation. That they had turned their backs on God, worshiped this calf, and then just complete chaos and debauchery ensued. And what's so interesting about this this passage is this story is, is how did we get here? I mean, God has shown up in miraculous ways. They had the 10 plagues. They had the crossing of the Red Sea. God has time and time again shown up to protect them. And not only that, but once he freed them from Pharaoh, he showed up and he was their source of food. He was their source of water in the wilderness. He was their protection, he was their warmth, he was their shelter. Every need that they had was met through Yahweh. They were completely dependent on him and he provided for them every time. And how do they so quickly turn away? How do they so quickly turn their backs on God? And the truth is, 
The truth is it is found in that first verse is it says that when Moses was so long coming down the mountain and they didn't know what happened to him, he'd been gone about a month, 40 days, and the people think he has died. And the reason that's so important is because Moses, remember, was the intermediary to get to God's presence. He was the one who would go between God and the people. And without him, they begin to think of all those things that Yahweh has provided and think we won't have access to those anymore because Moses is dead. We won't have the protection. We won't have the food. We won't have the water. And in short, they think that without Moses, they will die. And so they create a calf, an intercessor who's to go between them and Yahweh, to lead them, to show them the way. They think this calf will meet their needs. And what's so interesting in in turning to this calf for their security and their protection, they do a grave disservice to God. Because as you may have noticed, there's several things that they say about this calf and what they do for this calf that were only intended for God. So for instance, they say that they take off the ornaments and the earrings that they had in order to make the golden calf. Those ornaments and earrings were the same ones that the Egyptians gave them when they plundered Egypt after they left after the 10 plagues. And they were reserved to be used in the tabernacle. And here they used them instead for their own worship and their own God. And not only that, but they say of this calf that it is the God who has brought them out of Egypt. They give credit for what God has done to an inanimate object. And if you just think about it on a purely logical level, like how dumb do these people have to be that they create this calf, they make it, and then they give it credit for something that happened months ago. How could this calf have done something that happened months ago? Only God could have done it. And yet they give credit from what God has done to another thing. And not only that, but they, they begin to mix worship with Yahweh and worship with this calf, and they give burnt offerings and sacrifices to this calf. And they've created God in their own image to meet their own needs. And chaos ensues. And the truth of the matter is that when we think of our own lives, when we think of the Israelites' lives, when we take things that are meant for God, when we take God's place and give it to another, Chaos ensues. Imagine for a moment a solar system, our solar system. We know that in our solar system, all of the planets revolve around the sun because the sun has enough gravitational force, enough gravitational pull to keep everything in order the way that it's supposed to be. But could you imagine for a moment if we replaced the sun with, let's say, the moon? the moon would not have the gravitational force to keep everything in order. The orbits of the planets would become chaos and crash into each other and and it would be disorder in our solar system because only the sun has enough gravitational pull to keep things in order. And it's the same for our lives. Only God has enough gravitational pull to keep our lives in order. If you wanna see chaos Put your family in the center of your life. If you put your career in the center of your life, chaos will ensue. If you put your goals, your objectives, your accolades, your wealth, your success, 
if that becomes the sole thing which you are oriented towards, your life will result in chaos because only God was meant to take that place. Only he is worthy. Only he has enough gravitational pull to keep our lives the way that they were supposed to be. God had brought the people out of Israel in or, or out of Egypt in order to be his people, in order for their lives to be centered on him, to worship him, to know him. And when they have replaced him with something else to meet their needs, to find their security, their lives break into chaos. And the problem is that not only do their lives break into chaos, but their relationship with God begins to crumble. And what you see is that this relationship with God, that he has brought them out to center their worship, to center their lives, they replace him with something else. And their relationship with him is broken. And to be honest, as I've read this next part of the, the story over the last couple of weeks, I get really uncomfortable because it seems a little bit like God is one of those high school students at camp who just had their heart broken. And it seems like he's overreacting. And it seems like he's kind of throwing a temper tantrum. And it seems like you need to just go to your room and calm down and get a little perspective when you read the story. And it's a little unsettling. And to be honest, as I've wrestled with this text, I have struggled not to create God in my own image, to make him fit something that I think will meet my needs or what I think will fit your needs. This is not an easy topic for us to talk about because God gets really angry. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt, notice the change. Up till this point in Exodus, God has continually said, my people who I have rescued from Egypt. But now he's displacing the people, disowning them and says, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, whom you brought out of Egypt. And then it goes on and it says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. Whoa, that escalated quickly. How did we get from the place where God has rescued his people, brought them out of slavery, made them his own, given them the commands of how they can dwell with him to get into the place where he wants to utterly destroy them and start over with Moses and Moses' family? I mean, what we have here, what it looks like is about to happen is another flood scenario where God's just gonna wipe everything out and start over. He is angry and heartbroken and it is really, really uncomfortable for us as modern readers to read that because we see a God who is angry and that's not the kind of God that we wanna worship. And it seems like an overreaction, like a temper tantrum. And it seems like God is doing something that's against his character and against who we think he ought to be. But if you take a step back 
and you think of it in our own terms, what we realize is that we actually, in those moments when we question and we wonder about that, we're, we're trying to hold God to a standard that we would not hold ourselves to. So for instance, if you set up an appointment to meet someone for coffee at a, at a local coffee shop, and they never show up, and they never call to tell you why, you would probably be frustrated. Or let's say if you have a, a rec league team that you're starting and you try to recruit your friends to play on this rec league team, you guys are gonna go play basketball at the rec together. And one of your friends says, yeah, I'll be on the team. But they never pay to be on the team, the cost that it, it has, and they kind of just show up whenever they want. You'd probably be frustrated. You would be angry. And if you up the ante, we all have heard stories of people who married someone who made a decision to marry them without the commitment that followed. That they were unfaithful to the spouse. And when we see the person who's been mistreated in that situation, we do not ever tell them to not be angry. They are right to be angry. It is justified to be angry. When someone who has said they would commit to do something to you, to do something with you, goes back on that decision and doesn't follow through with it with a commitment. We are angry. And that is God in the story. The people made a decision for him, but not the commitment. They broke their covenantal relationship. They broke their marital vows to God. And while we think of God as some angry, judgmental machine sometimes, what's so interesting is when God recalls this later in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says this, I remember the devotion of your youth, talking about Israel, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness through a land not sown. God is recalling this time early in the relationship, this young puppy love that we all know and remember, the honeymoon phase of the relationship where the people were wholly devoted to him, where they loved him and gave themselves to him. God is remembering this moment, but then he goes on and he says in verse five, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? Doesn't that sound like so many of our lives? We come to a place where we are so connected to God. We are so infatuated. We are so in love with him. We have had an encounter and an experience with the Almighty that changes who we are. And yet a few months later, we are right back where we started. We are turning our back on him. We are chasing after other idols. We are chasing after other things that we think will fill us and fulfill us. What's so interesting in that Jeremiah passage is what grieves God, what says has broken his heart about his people is that they traded him, forsook him, the living water, and instead replaced him with empty jars that were broken and incapable of giving the people the water they desired. And that is our story. That is the Israelite story. We come to things and to people and we hope that they will fill us and fulfill us and meet our needs. And we place them at the center of our lives. And not only does it cause chaos in our lives, but it breaks God's heart and it makes him angry. 
that we would forsake him for something that could never meet the needs we have the way he could. And so God is angry. And what's interesting is the next portion of the story, Moses and God, they have a, a, a dialogue with one another. And, and at first glance, when you read it, it's a little confusing, but what's really going on, what most scholars say is happening here is that Moses has come to the place where he is so closely aligned with God, that he so closely knows who God is, that he is, he, as he is dialoguing with God, it is almost as if that we're reading an internal dialogue of God. And what we see in this internal dialogue is God's heart is torn between justice and mercy. His need to bring justice for the, the wrong that has been done, for the idolatry that has happened, and his desire to be merciful to his people. And so Moses says, God, don't destroy them. Don't start over with them because you just went through all this trouble to bring them out of Egypt. Why would we start all over and destroy them? What would the Egyptians think? What would the other nations think? Essentially, God's saying, this would be really bad PR for other nations who you are trying to help know you through your relationship with Israel. And more than that, he reminds God about the promises God has made. And he says, what about the promise you made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Israel? That you would bring them to the land flowing with milk and honey. That you would drive out their enemies before them. That you would bring them to the place where you would dwell with them as your people. And what it says is that because Moses reminded God of who he is and what he's done and his character, that he relents and he doesn't destroy. But there's still consequences for the people even though God doesn't start over, there are still consequences for the people because Moses goes back down the mountain and when he sees what is happening and he sees the chaos that is ensuing, it actually says three times that they are out of control and chaotic and, and wild. And when he sees that happening, his anger burns and he takes the tablets God had given him and he throws them at the foot of the mountain, breaking them as a symbol that they have broken the relationship with God. And then he takes the calf and he burns it and he grinds it into a powder and he puts it in the water and he makes the people drink it. And then he has a conversation with Aaron and he says, Aaron, how did this all go so crazy? What happened? And Aaron, in such a human fashion, says, well, they wanted a God, so we burnt down the gold, we threw it in the fire, and then this calf just popped out. We have no idea how it happened, but it just, sin just happened. We didn't do anything actively. And Moses then turns to the people and he says, okay, who is still for Yahweh? Who will still worship Yahweh? And the Levites rally to him. And he tells them to strap on a sword and go through the camp and kill their brother and their neighbor and their friend. And it says that that day 3,000 people died. And the 3,000 people who died, what we understand is that they were the ones who were instigating this rebellion. They were the leaders and they were refusing to come back to Yahweh. And so 3,000 of them are killed. And then it's night, they all go to bed somehow. And Moses wakes up the next morning and he says, I'm gonna go back up the mountain. I'm gonna have a conversation with God and I'm going to see if I can atone for your sin. And he goes up to the, the mountain and he has a conversation with God and he, and he says, God, don't start over with me. Forgive the people. 
don't blot them out from your book. And God says, I will do justice as I should. And a plague is sent to the people. And then we have this conversation with God and Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people who you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised, an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. What's so interesting is God comes to the people and he says, I will stay true to my character. Stay true to my promise. You can have the land. I will drive out your enemies. I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey. I will give you the blessings and the needs and the security you desire. But you cannot have my presence. And the question for us is would we take that deal? Would we agree to those terms? If God promised us the house, the job, the career, the family, the marriage that we desired, the things that we're looking for in life, if he promised us those things and said, I will give you all that you desire, but you can't have me, would you take that deal? And a hint Whatever it is that would keep you from taking that deal, that is your idol. It's a water stone. Who are your gods? What are the things or people in your life that you have placed at the center, that you have chosen over God's presence? What we see from the people is that when God says this, it's so fascinating. It says, when they heard these distressing words, they took off their golden earrings and their jewelry as a symbol to say, we will never do that again. See, they are finally ready to move from decision to commitment. And it's at the, not at the high point, but at the lowest of the lows, when they recognize their sin and their idolatry and what they have done to break their relationship with God. They repent and they say, we will not do this again. Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to say we won't do it again? And not in some mountaintop high experience where the emotion has us running to make a decision, but in a commitment deep from our soul that says, Jesus, you are better. God, you are more. You are enough. The fascinating thing about this story is that three times it calls the people stiff-necked in their relationship to God. And three times it says that they bowed to the calf. And what you have here is a juxtaposition between a people who are willing to bow down to a calf, but when it comes to God and his will and his rule and his reign, they stand stiff-necked, refusing to bow, refusing to come under his will and his reign, to be in covenant relationship with him, to be in his presence. Which are we? 
What are we choosing to bow to? Are we stiff-necked to God's will and his rule and his reign? Or will we give him our allegiance? I would like us to take a moment to read a a prayer of repentance. And often when we do this, everyone stands um, to read as a declaration of our repentance to God. But I'm going to ask for for things to be a little different this morning. Instead, I'm going to ask that that you can have one of three postures as we go through this prayer of repentance. The first is is you can stand to read as a declaration of, of allegiance to God and saying that you want to give up your idols and the things that you have placed in God's place. The second would be that you can just stay in your seat and bow and have this prayer read over you as a symbol of giving up your stiff necked nature towards God. And then the third would be don't respond at all. Just remain in your seat. If this is just another decision point for you, then let it be that. Because what God has called us to is a commitment to him, to declare allegiance to him, to say that he is the only one we will bow to. And in this prayer of repentance, I would like us to take those postures. And so again, you can, you can stand and declare, you can bow and have it read over you, or you can just sit and contemplate where you're at in this journey and this struggle. And even though I honestly don't feel like I I can take the the posture as a leader, I'm going to step into this and um, hopefully God won't smite me for for being a hard-hearted and stiff-necked person. And so go ahead and and you can either stand, bow, or sit um, and read with me these words. Almighty and most merciful Father, We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. And spare thou those who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises declared unto mankind. In Christ Jesus our Lord, and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of thy holy name. Amen. The difficulty about this passage is it leaves us in attention. The story is only half complete. The restoration that happens between God and his people doesn't happen until the next two chapters. And unfortunately, we don't get to go into those today. And and you'll have to come back next week to feel a little better about ourselves. But I think there are moments and there are times in our life where it is okay for us to sit in that tension. To recognize the depths of our sin to recognize the ways that we have pulled God out of the place that is only reserved for him, to recognize the ways that we have hurt and broken our relationship with God. What's so fascinating is as you look at this story, you come to the end and you are so thankful that Moses was there as the intermediate between God and the people that's helping to bring this restoration back into place. 
that he's there to pray and to, to work with God on what he should do and, and, and how he should respond to the people's idolatry. And the truth is, while Moses was willing to lay down his life for the people of God, we have an intermediary, an intercessor who laid down his life for us and for the people. And we have to remember that in Christ, our repentance is heard and we have forgiveness. That in Christ, all of our hope rests in him and him alone. And that our restoration to our relationship with God is made possible. And so now I would ask that as we close, that you stand and you worship Jesus, the second Moses, the intercessor who goes between us and the mountain of God in order that we may regain God's presence. Amen. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.